Hi everyone, it's Nadia here. I just wanted to quickly say that we're sorry, we know the audio in this podcast episode from Salzo's End isn't that good. Unfortunately her laptop broke, but we still wanted to get an episode out for you today. So we really hope you enjoy the episode regardless, and next week we promise it will be better. Thank you so much for your support, let's get into the show. And welcome to Infraction. I'm Nadia. And I'm Sally. And quick word of warning, today's episode is a little bit gory and graphic. Um, the victim in this case suffered some truly horrific injuries. And in order to do her story justice, I do go into quite a lot of detail about her injuries. So if you're a little bit squeamish, maybe sit this episode out and join us next week for something a little bit less graphic. However, I really do hope you'll stay and listen because this is a truly remarkable story of courage and survival. In 1994, in South Africa, 27-year-old Alison Botha lived in a place called Port Elizabeth with her mum and her brother Neil. In an interview, Alison said that she never really saw herself as remarkable when she was younger, and aside from being the head girl, she was never the best at anything at school. She describes her educational achievements as average, which, to be fair, it kind of like aptly sums up my entire school experience, like just being very average, having very average grades. And head girl. Yeah, <laughs> and head girl. <laughs> Um, so she went on to university and studied a secretarial degree, um, but at the time of her abduction, Alison was working as an insurance broker. On the 18th of December 1994, Alison had spent the day at the beach all day, and then she went back to her house with her friends and ordered a pizza. She then offered to drop one of her friends home back at their own house because it was after midnight and she didn't want her walking back alone. So she dropped off her friend and it was around 1am when she pulled back into her street and she saw that her parking space outside her house had been taken. So she parked a little bit further down the street. She pulled up to the curb, turned off her engine and then all of a sudden felt a knife against her throat. A man had come up to her open window. He said, move over or else I'll kill you. So she moved herself over into the passenger seat. She stared at the car door and realised that she hadn't locked the doors. She could have jumped out, but she didn't. And a lot of articles that I've read really sort of play on this fact. They say like she froze or she panicked and that's why she didn't get out of the car. But in interviews I've seen of Alison, she doesn't say that. She says that she intentionally didn't get out of the car because she didn't want to believe that this man was going to hurt her. Like she didn't want to believe the worst situation could happen. Um, and I don't really know why these articles play on it so much because I think no one knows how you're going to react in a situation like this. No, absolutely. And I think to be honest, most people probably would just freeze. I can't imagine that many people have a particularly coherent thought process when someone puts a knife to their throat. No, exactly. And like, especially in a place you know like South Africa obviously has like gun laws and things like that so like he could easily have had a gun the last thing I'd want to do is run away from a vehicle where you, know, you could potentially get shot in the back or something like that like I think I would just stay as well so the man said that he didn't want to hurt her but that he just wanted to use her car and he told her that his name was Clinton he asked her if she had a boyfriend and she said this gave her a sort of sense of security which I imagine it probably would do wouldn't it because he's obviously kind of like humanizing her do you know what they say when you get kidnapped that you should tell them all about your life and your name and say that you've got a brother and a mother and where you live and all that sort of stuff to like humanize you so they don't want to attack you and they see you as a person rather than just like an object yeah. I think she kind of felt like this was quite safe because he was asking her all these questions so she felt he didn't actually want to hurt her however he then pulled over and another man got into the back of the car and when she looked in the rearview mirror, she was met by his cold, hard stare and her blood stilled, her heart quickened and she lost all sense of security. She says that his eyes were black and evil 
and she said at this point she knew she wouldn't be going home. They kept driving out of the residential area past the last roads with street lamps and they pulled off the main road and into an alcove. The men got out of the car and pulled her out. One of them forced her to have oral sex with him and then he did the same thing to her. He was taunting her and he was saying really obscene and vile things to her. Um, He also gave her a love bite on her breast. He then raped her. During an interview, Alison said that her body responded to the rape and although that this is a protection mechanism for the body when being raped, uh, she said for her it just felt like the most ultimate betrayal. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing actually and I can't even begin to imagine how heartbreaking and confusing that must feel but I think it is something that you do hear actually when survivors are talking about crimes committed against them that actually it is a huge betrayal because every single part of them is in huge fear Um, and I think it can really contribute to some of the feelings of shame that people carry about sexual crimes Um, Mm -hmm. so I think it's quite heartbreaking and actually though very commendable of her to speak openly about Mm -hmm. it because I expect that it's something a lot of people will never admit to to experiencing but actually if anyone can listen to to that kind of comment in an interview who's been through a similar thing then I imagine it provides quite a sense of comfort to other women who might have gone through something similar yeah absolutely so the man who raped her got out of the car and said do you want to have sex with the lovely lady Tian's And Alison realised at at this moment that his name wasn't Clinton. Tian said, no, Franz, I want to fuck the bitch. So now, basically, she has both of their names. Um, So Tian's put his hand around her throat so tightly that Alison passed out. And when she woke up, the man was stabbing her. She was lying on the ground. And as she looked up, she could see him slicing her abdomen and pubic area. Alison was stabbed over 37 times. Tian's then cut Alison's throat... And the other man, Franz, pushed him out the way, took the knife, and then Alison could basically see his arm moving back and forth. And what this man was essentially doing was trying to saw her head off. There was over 17 slashes to her throat. Jesus. And this, at this point, you're then wondering, because to start with, it sounded like a, a sexual crime, didn't it? But suddenly you're wondering, actually, is there sounds a lot more layers to this, that these people, you know, at this point, they're not trying to kill her to to get rid of any evidence or her being able to identify them later on this sounds like a very graphic very different element to the crime suddenly yeah that's so true i think also i've read somewhere that stabbing in itself is actually quite a sexual way of killing someone because you're like penetrating i guess so i think in a lot of things that i've read relating to other cases that stabbing is definitely sort of a more sexual crime. But I totally take what you're saying. It started as what was, um, you know, a sexual assault and a rape, and now it has turned into a very vicious killing um, in a very sort of frenzied way. Yeah, absolutely. So Alison saw the men getting back in their car, and she saw them throwing her clothing out the window and drive off. Um, So actually, it was her car they got back into, sorry, obviously, because they took her car. But her clothing was in the back, and uh, they threw this out the window. She said at this point she couldn't feel any pain, but she could hear her jagged breathing through her severed windpipe. At this point in in the interviews, Alison describes herself as having a sort of -of out-of-body experience. She describes that she feels like she went up, everything was totally silent, and she was looking down on her body. And she could see herself laying there naked. She realised that she had to make a decision whether or not she was going to die or whether or not she was going to try and fight this. And she said that she made the decision to go back into her body 
And then all of a sudden she said there wasn't any silence anymore. All she could hear was that awful breathing sound through her severed windpipe. Her first thoughts when she was lying there was that she didn't want these men to do it to anyone else. So lying there naked and injured on the floor, she reached out her hand and in the sand she wrote Franz and then next to it she wrote Tiens and above that she wrote I love mum, which is oh, so sad, but so commendable that during the most horrific moment of her life, she thought, do you know what? I don't want this to happen to anyone else and I know what these guys' names are and I'm going to write it in the sand so hopefully someone will find it. Yeah, I think it speaks volumes to personal strength. And also the human body, really, that not only has she survived these injuries, but she's able to think clearly enough to muster the strength to do what really could completely change the the outcome of this horrible story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So she said at this point that she wanted to move and she wanted to fight and that she still couldn't feel any pain because of this because of not being able to feel any pain she didn't know how injured she was so she got on all fours and she started crawling and then she felt a heavy wet feeling against her legs and she realized that her intestines were outside her body so she reached out to grab her denim shirt that was on the floor that the men had thrown out of her car and she used this to push her intestines back inside her body and hold them in with one hand oh my god it's crazy it's honestly and it just honestly gets crazier so she started crawling and trying to push herself up the side of the alcove to get to the main road but she said it was too slow she could feel herself getting weaker and she panicked she didn't want to die but she was crawling too slowly and she said at this point that where she'd written i love mum in the sand she said i couldn't have my mother seeing that i'd tried to move and I'd moved past the point where I'd like written these names in the sand and written I love mum in the sand. She was like, I didn't want her to find my body here and like see that I gave up. So she was like, right, I need to do something bigger than this. Uh, crawling is way too slow. So she stopped and she used all of her strength and then pushed herself into a standing position and everything went black. She squeezed her eyes shut and reopened them and everything was still so dark. But as her eyes adjusted, she started seeing tiny stars Her neck muscles had been so badly severed that it couldn't support her head anymore. And as she stood up, her head had fallen backwards and was resting between her shoulder blades. She reached up to her throat and her entire hand went into the wound. She used her other hand to pull her head up and hold it onto her neck. So at this point, Alison is now holding her intestines inside her body with one hand and holding her head on top of her shoulders and neck with the other hand. Um... Quick question. This is a hundred percent true, isn't it? Like I'm struggling to understand how her, her windpipe's not completely severed at this point. Her windpipe is severed. She is essentially breathing out of her windpipe above her collarbone. It's so I've I've watched so many documentaries on this, and Alison has her own documentary, and they interview the um, doctors and surgeons who perform the surgeries on her that day it's 100 yeah. percent true but i know how unbelievable it sounds i know how unbelievable it sounds yeah you just can't imagine that a human could survive this well no and like i go on to like basically go into sort of the biology of it and it is absolutely mind-blowing how this didn't kill her yeah. and um, as i go on like you'll you'll it will become more apparent just how mind-blowing this is um so at this point, Alison says that she had another out-of-body experience. So she said it felt like someone was carrying her. Um, but basically what had happened was she had got herself to the main road. So she had been walking. She got herself to the main road. But at this point, the fight completely left her body. And she fell into the road and she lay there. 
She saw a car coming and the lights blinded her. The car stopped but nobody got out and Alison felt fear running through her body as she realised that it could be Tianz and Franz in the car coming back to check if she was dead. However, the car drove off and left her in the road. Oh my god. Yeah. I found this so difficult. I don't know if they thought it was like a dead animal or what, but she is lying there naked in the road. Yeah, absolutely. You can't, Im- you, to be honest, you can't imagine how anyone would make that mistake. No, I find it so weird. But, a bit, to be honest, it could have been France and Tiens, but I doubt it. I really doubt it was them who came back. But whoever it was, they obviously didn't feel the need to get out of the car and check. Or maybe they didn't want to get involved or I don't really know. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose they could have just panicked themselves and it would be quite a shocking thing to drive past and i'm not saying that i wouldn't stop i really hope i would but you can imagine that maybe someone made a split second decision of kind of oh my god you would hope though even if you did drive off you'd call the police or something Mm, yeah but yeah i don't know (laughs) i don't know we don't know what was going through their heads um but luckily sometime later another car came and it was 20 year old veterinary student tian l i oh my god i'm gonna butcher tian eilard sorry for that name pronunciation so he was visiting Port Elizabeth with some friends and he got out of the car and saw a naked girl covered in blood. He lay on the floor next to her and held her hand and tried desperately to keep talking to her to keep her awake. He took off his shirt and lay it over her. She opened her eyes and he said that all he could see was blood and fear. One of his friends in the car had a mobile phone and this was actually a complete miracle because mobiles were really new technology at this time and no one really had one. So the friend called the emergency services and um, they were told that they were sending out an ambulance. The hospital was only 15 minutes away, so they were hoping someone would come quickly, but the ambulance didn't arrive for 40 minutes. Oh my God. I, I found that hard, like really hard. And like um, they interview Tian, who was the guy who um, was like laying in the road with her. And um, he was saying like he just kept waiting and waiting and he just couldn't believe how long it was taking them to come. And 40 minutes must feel like an eternity when you're in that situation. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's just amazing that at this point she's not, bled to death yeah. or, and you'd also think that because obviously ambulances often are overstretched but they're sort of on a triage basis you would imagine at this point there'd be very few people who must be as close to death as she was at this point yeah totally and like in the interview as well um he said that when they when the um, ambulance eventually did turn up and start taking her to the hospital apparently the ambulance like the driver was driving really really slowly and tian was kind of like look, can we speed this up? Can we speed this up? And they basically had this view of like, well, she's definitely not going to make it. Like her injuries are are so vast. Like there's no point sort of like rushing back to the hospital, Um, which in itself is like also just massively sad, like really, really sad. But I guess from their point of view, I mean, the injury she sustained were horrific. Obviously she must, it must've looked horrific as well. And obviously her intestines were outside her body, that kind of thing. She'd been completely disemboweled. So I don't know. You would like to think so that they would have drive faster if you were in that situation. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it probably, like you mentioned earlier, though, any amount of time in this situation would feel like an eternity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like sort of going to that point, from the time that Alison had been abducted to the time she arrived at hospital, only 90 minutes had passed. How terrifying to think that like that's how quickly your whole life can change in like one and a half hours. Yeah, absolutely. The injuries that Alison suffered were unspeakable. So this goes back to like what we were saying earlier about just like how mind-blowing this is. Her throat had been stabbed so many times that she essentially had one gigantic wound from like one ear to the other. Her trachea, so her windpipe, had been cleanly cut through and this meant that she was actually breathing through a hole in her neck just above her collarbone. She had also been completely disemboweled. Her intestines were laying on top of her stomach and they were covered in sand, charcoal and glass. 
Um, a further look into her injury showed that she had suffered such a brutal and frenzied attack to her abdomen area that if Alison was to survive this, it would be very unlikely that she would be able to have children. So I'm going to get a little bit sciencey for a moment. Um, as we spoke at the top of the show, I was very average at school, so I only got a B in GCSE biology. So I don't know if this is correct. I've tried so hard to like fact check this, but looking at diagrams of arteries in the human skeleton makes me feel so lightheaded. I find it so weird. <laughs> um, so in a human neck, there are many blood vessels and arteries that supply the brain and head with blood. The carotid arteries are located on each side of your neck and you can feel them if you place your finger on either side of your windpipe, which is disgusting. But if the carotid artery is cut, it will almost always result in death because too much blood is lost too quickly. Alison suffered 17 stabs to her neck. Of course, her windpipe was severed, but amazingly, her carotid arteries were not cut and none of her other vital blood vessels in her neck were injured either. If they had been, like you said, Sal, it's very likely that Alison would have died within three to four minutes of the attack because she would have just bled to death. She also injured multiple stab wounds to the chest. Any of these frenzied stabs could have fatally penetrated her heart or lungs, but astonishingly, none of them did. Alison suffered over 30 stab wounds to her abdomen, including one large incision from her belly button down to her pubic area. This is the incision that was so deep that it disemboweled her. But despite how deep some of the stab wounds were, none of them punctured or injured any of her vital organs either. So this is just, I like, amazed me more than I can probably describe. I cannot believe that such a frenzied and aggressive attack didn't result in one fatal injury. Like, no artery was cut, no vital organ was punctured. Her intestines were outside of her body. Her windpipe was severed so badly that she was breathing through a hole above her collarbone. Her neck muscles were cut so deeply that they no longer held up her head, and yet she survived. Absolutely. And also, I think this can tell us a little bit then um, about the perpetrators of this crime, because they're clearly not people who savoured every moment of trying to kill someone, or, you know, a lot of murderers quite deeply study human anatomy um, and would, you know, have a very adept understanding of things like mm-hmm. carotid arteries and things, but actually you can start to see that this is probably, as we've used the word frenzied, um, yeah. almost kind of panicked, rushed. Uh, it's it's not necessarily perhaps the, the killing element that they've taken a huge amount of gratification in, in the, in the way that you might see in some crime. No, I definitely agree. So, of course, during this situation, Alison fought so hard to survive, and I, I absolutely don't want to take away from her courage or her strength, But I do also think it's important to just reference how amazing the doctors and surgeons were. Uh, Dr. Angelov was a Bulgarian surgeon who was working in Port Elizabeth in South Africa on the day that Alison was brought in. He was not faced by her injuries at all. He was told by another doctor that they should bring in an ENT surgeon to work on the injuries to Alison's neck and um, that he should then be able to move on to the abdominal injuries. But Dr. Angelov replied, in my country, I am an ENT specialist and a general surgeon. I will do both surgeries. And that's exactly what he did. He repaired Alison's windpipe so she was able to breathe and talk normally again and did such neat work on her neck that there is barely even a visible scar on her neck to this day. He then moved on to her abdomen area and piece by piece he removed all the dirt and sand from each bit of her intestine, even using a scrubbing brush in places to make sure there was no foreign debris left there that could have caused infection. He was meticulous and Alison is definitely alive today because of his amazing work. Unfortunately, Dr. Angelov passed away in 2011, but in an interview I have seen of him describing the surgery, he said there is no scientific explanation for why Alison survived. He describes it as a miracle. Wow. 
After her operation, Alison had been intubated, so she was unable to talk. Um, so intubation is when, obviously, they put a tube um, into the throat. It's called an endotracheal tube, and it's hooked up to a ventilator to help patients breathe. Um, but obviously, this means you can't talk. So the police came in to see if Alison would be able to help identify her attackers. They showed her photos of known rapists in the area. Alison pointed to one photo and wrote down France. She then pointed to another photo and wrote down Tians. At first, this seemed to satisfy the police officers and they left, but unfortunately, the next day, they came back. The chief prosecutor had told the police that in order to get a conviction, they needed Alison to verbalise the name of each attacker. This would mean removing the tube. This was only two days post-surgery, so Alison's sutures, her stitches, were still very fresh and, of course, would not have healed yet. Removing the tube from Alison's throat posed a serious risk of pulling at the suture line in Alison's trachea. So this risk of removing the tube to Alison was explained and it was recommended that she didn't remove the tube this early after surgery. But regardless of the advice given, Alison wrote, take it out on the paper next to her bed. So the doctor removed the tube and Alison took a deep breath and said, ah, that's wonderful. And then in her next breath, she said, my attackers were France and Tians. Can't imagine that kind of like bravery. No, absolutely. But the other thing that I think is quite shocking there is that you said they're on a list of known rapists in the area. Yeah. And you'd be quite curious to understand. I mean, I understand that we've got to operate a system of rehabilitation, um, of not assuming that somebody might commit a crime once and then permanently be offender, etc. But you do slightly have to question how two men that were known to the police for committing such a crime were allowed such an extent of freedom that they were able to not only commit the same crime, but actually for all intents and purposes escalate it. As the doctor said, it is nothing short of a miracle that actually this isn't a murder investigation. That's exactly what I thought. And I don't, I couldn't find the timeline for this. But before Alison's attack, the pair had raped two other women. Um, the first victim had reported that she'd been raped after a week because she was really scared that the, the pair would carry out their threats of killing her if she did go to the police. And the second victim was pregnant at the time. And so she reported it straight away because she was uh, worried for her baby's safety. So... This was in a lot of the uh, sort of research that I looked into and a lot of the articles, but I can't tell if they already knew who these two were and that they were linked to this crime or not when Alison was attacked um, or if they, this sort of came to light afterwards because basically they'd threatened both these women and said, if you go to the police, we will kill you. Neither of these women had listened and that is essentially why they had then gone on to um, attack Alison in such a strong way because they, they basically chose her to rape her. But they said that the reason they went on to then kill her is because the other two women hadn't listened. So I would like to think that all this information came out after Alison's attack and not before, because that seems pretty unjust and very, very sad for Alison if um, the police knew about these two men who were going around raping women and threatening to kill them. But if they if they showed Alison a photo, then it must have been before the attack. I couldn't find much information on their past convictions but i know that france already had two convictions for rape so he is like a serial rapist and he'd already done time in prison for raping people so that's why they had his photo but yeah i maybe you are right maybe it is because they already knew and they'd linked tians to this crime as well um but from what i could tell tians didn't have a previous um any previous conviction so whether or not he just had never been convicted but maybe they thought that he was a rapist i don't know but I mean, I'm trying. I'm basically just trying to justify the police's actions here, but I think I think you are right. I think maybe they did know, which is really sad. Yeah, I just think that 
if of course you will always have a list of known offenders in a local area that may get pulled up when a new similar crime to theirs happens but i think the key point here is that prison is there to serve multiple purposes Mm -hmm. so one is to rehabilitate the other is to protect the public and there's lots of people in prison who may not be a danger to a public but actually it sounds like these two regardless of if they serve their time or not it slightly sounds like somebody misjudged here whether they were an ongoing threat yeah i just think it's very sad to think that they clearly only took them a couple of days for police to identify and i mean it's great that they have and hopefully this is going to lead in a successful conviction but it's just an awful thought to think that this crime could have been avoided yeah yeah no i I massively agree maybe they didn't think they were a threat anymore because france um had a wife and a baby at this point so he'd been in prison and all the rest of it so maybe they just thought he was now settling into the society and the community and things like that I'm, i'm not sure yeah absolutely very hard to judge yeah but either way these these two men were arrested and they were charged with attempted murder and in custody both were completely shocked and they asked why attempted murder and when the police officer replied because Alison survived both went silent and the officer actually said that you could have knocked them over with a feather Franz sighed and said I guess I can't hide anything from you then she'll tell you everything and then he took a ring off his finger and said this is Alison's and the blood on the ring matched Alison's DNA god what an incredibly I don't know fascinating response I suppose you would you know he is correct they know exactly what happened they've got a a living victim but also i think you still see a lot of criminals who wouldn't necessarily react like that and in complete surrender to the police Mm -hmm. it's it actually is bizarre isn't it that they would just be like oh she survived and they're just like okay well then yeah it was us it does seem weird yeah absolutely so Alison managed to identify her attackers in a identity parade. So the South African laws at this point, and I think now actually still, they require a identification procedure to happen. And normally that would involve going into a room, pointing at the person you were accusing of being your attacker, and then someone taking a photo of you pointing at that attacker so that the courts can basically see that you identified that individual. Alison obviously didn't want to do this because she didn't want to be in a room with them for quite obvious reasons. So they set up a um, new system where they used a one-way glass mirror. So Alison stood behind it and pointed at them. But she said like even then she was so nervous about being so close to them and she was absolutely petrified even though she knew that they couldn't see her. But I think you just would be, wouldn't you? You'd be absolutely terrified of being even in the same building as them. Yeah, absolutely. It would be incredibly hard to face up to seeing the people who did such a horrific thing to you so during this Alison was able to identify Franz Dutoit and Tians Kruger as her attackers and I have totally butchered those names but I mean they don't deserve my respect for trying to pronounce them properly <laughs> no agreed when arriving at court each day the pair weren't handcuffed every day of the trial they turned up to court and walked straight in with no restraints and in an interview the lead investigator said that he didn't handcuff them ever because he wanted them to run Uh, So he wanted them to try and escape so that he'd have probable cause to shoot them. But they didn't once ever attempt to run because they're pussies. (laughs) At the trial, Franz testified that he was a Satanist. He requested a pastor when he was in prison. Is that right? A pastor? A pastor. Pastor. Oh my God, so posh. Well, I don't know. I think everyone will know what you're referring to. (laughs) So in prison, he requested a pastor. And he said that he um, did this because he wanted the demons expelled from his body. And this pastor actually testified at the trial that Franz was making the entire thing up and that during their meetings, he'd got the names of the devils confused and that 
although he was acting possessed by licking windows and convulsing his body and jumping at walls and there's like a video of him staring motionlessly at a security camera it was quite clear that he was putting on this entire performance on the 7th of august 1995 franz and tienz attended their sentencing hearing so two months before on the 6th of june 1995 the death penalty in south africa was actually abolished but the judge declared that if he had had the power he would have sentenced them to death Franz was sentenced to three life terms with no parole. Tians was sentenced to one life term with no parole for 25 years. The judge indicated that the men should have uh, written on their records that they should never be released from prison. I kind of like looked into why their sentences were so different because Franz got three life terms and Tians only got one. Mm, I was wondering. But I think it is what we said earlier about um, Franz already having several rape convictions. And I think also it appeared to the judge that he was the mastermind behind this all and he was definitely more dominant and appeared a lot more dangerous than Tian's. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose to some degree it's more symbolic than anything. Like you say, they're probably both going to spend the rest of their life behind bars. Um, I suppose if there was clear evidence that they had different degrees of involvement, the judge in some way just had to acknowledge that perhaps. Yeah. Oh. Unfortunately, in 2011, new legislation came into effect that stated that all prisoners who were sentenced to life imprisonment before 2004 and who had already served 13 years and four months of their sentence could apply for parole. And in 2015, they became eligible for parole. And Alison found this out by reading it in a newspaper. And as you can imagine, once again, the bottom of her world completely fell away. I can't imagine how you ever begin to recover from a crime like that. I think to be what's striking about it is that just going about your day it's strange danger which is actually incredibly rare um and it was a crime of really horrific magnitude and i think the only salvation in a situation like that probably would be the fact they're behind bars so you can't imagine hearing anything much worse than that there's so much as a chance that they could actually be released yeah definitely so do we know what sparked that change in law um, so not entirely sure, and I also found it quite confusing, but I think the point is is for it to be a sort of incentive scheme. I think if you have life in prison with no possibility of parole, there isn't really an incentive for you to behave well and not do anything else. And I think the particular prisons in South Africa are quite violent. Basically, if you have a life sentence and you kill someone else, another inmate, or injure another inmate or something like that, they can't add any more years onto your sentence. And now that the death penalty had been taken away i think they were trying to use this as an incentive to stop people from committing further crimes in prison giving them that opportunity for uh being able to apply for parole even if they had been sentenced to a life sentence i don't know if that really makes sense no i completely understand that i think probably two points on it the first is that you'd think to a degree could you not operate an internal incentive so i know that a lot of prisons uh, operate with having tiered levels for prisoners where they have more rights based on their behaviour. And I know that being eligible for parole is not the same thing as getting it, but I also think here that, as we said earlier, on some level, prison is there to rehabilitate and where rehabilitation is not possible to protect the public, etc. And so in this case, you think, yeah, I'm sure you want to improve the environment. I think penal reform is a huge issue, as are human rights in prisons. But actually, I think it's very hard to rehabilitate some people that for whom this is, you know, a preference, it's a drive, they've already committed and carried out their fantasies. And I'm just not sure that releasing them into the general population is an appropriate incentive to just improve behaviour within prison. I Honestly, I couldn't agree more. I think to me, it does seem very bizarre 
Um, especially when, you know, these crimes where people are receiving life sentences, they're not non-serious crimes, you know what I mean? They're, they're very violent oftentimes and they're almost always result in someone's murder or attempted murder or very serious um, abuse claims. So to me, it doesn't really make sense. But what you said is right, like being eligible for parole is not the same as getting parole. When they were eligible to apply, so that was 2015, there was a huge media uproar and a social media attack against the suggestion of them being paroled. And so it didn't happen. And hopefully it never no, will. And I think, yeah, I think that's excellent. And actually, that is an interesting um, thing that I think you see a lot more now with the how prevalent social media use is, is actually you do wonder some of these cases, are they very swung by what can be absolutely huge public uproars uh, in cases where pe- and people now have a, a forum to really air those things. You have things like online petitions to to really actually make people's voices matter now that we're all so much more connected and online. Um, and actually, whilst I don't always think a trial by social media is appropriate, I think you know in some some cases like this, it does really force attention uh, onto decisions, which actually I'm sure there's a whole panel of experts making these decisions anyway. But actually, I can think that for Alison, it probably provided some sense of security that not only was she really opposed and living in fear of a decision around this, but actually there was a whole world of people behind her. And it's like the making a murder effect, isn't it? It's like you shine such a big light on it from so many different people in society that they can't ignore it. Absolutely. And I think that's, you're, you're right, that will be very, um, almost like a comfort blanket for Alison that so many people are rallying against the idea of her like her attack is being released on parole so obviously this is quite some time later do we know how Alison is now I mean what what steps do you even begin to take to recover from an ordeal like this yeah so her recovery she said was the worst thing um so at the time she said there was she was in so much pain and that the pain was so big she felt like it would never go away um so like from a physical point of view her abdomen injury um had to be scraped every day until it bled so that it would encourage new cells to grow so that obviously was incredibly painful for her she actually didn't suffer mental health issues for a long time but then unfortunately um everything sort of caught up with her and she started suffering very serious mental health issues she stopped going to work and she stayed indoors all day she basically said she was so angry at Tians and france for ruining her life And then one day out of the blue, she got a invitation to a Rotary Club event asking if she would come and speak to an audience about her bravery. And obviously she was incredibly depressed and miserable. She didn't want to go. And she actually said that she hated public speaking anyway. But she remembered that she had chosen life once before and that she'd fought so hard. And she kind of wondered, what what did I fight for? So she pulled herself up out of her dark hole and she went to this event and spoke about her struggles and it made her feel so much better. She said that she got off the stage and she wanted to do it again and again. So she turned it into a career. So Alison is now a motivational speaker and she travels around the world to talk to audiences about overcoming tough situations. She says that she has an ABC to overcoming obstacles and that she put them into practice with a huge trauma in her life, but she uses them time and time again to deal with her everyday problems. So the ABC is attitude, belief and choice. And I think what is actually so sweet is that Alison um, actually managed to have two babies. So she conceived them naturally. and She had two healthy pregnancies. I think that is just that is so lovely. And also, you know, the veterinary student who I said was like laying on the floor with her, the guy who got out of the car. His name was Tian Eilert. Yeah. He um, actually retrained as a doctor after that situation. He basically was just so overcome with emotion that he decided he wanted to go and help people. So he retrained for 10 years as a doctor and he was actually the assisting doctor at Alison's second birth. 
Oh my god, that's very amazing, isn't it? Yeah, it's so lovely. Um, so now she's got this um, amazing career that she loves and she gets to travel around the world and give motivational speeches to people, which I think is just amazing. It's absolutely unbelievable. Franz is still being a gigantic bellend from within prison because he actually contacted Alison and her production team for her documentary that she made and said that he would come and do an interview for the documentary, provided that Alison gave him a signed letter of forgiveness and backdated profits from her book and her motivational talks because he reckons that what he did to Alison was the only reason she has a success story. Wow, well, that's just a, a whole new level of delusion, really, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. I think I'm almost a bit speechless, actually, because there's so many parts of this story which are beyond belief. It's a huge tale of not only her body overcoming injuries that, when you were describing them, just, well, you can't imagine them in anything other than a gory cartoon, really. Yeah. Um but also a huge testament of, of her overcoming it. So I think we've talked in the last couple of episodes about the ongoing traumas and the mental health impacts of things like this. And I can't even begin to imagine feeling safe in the world and getting over this, but the extent to which she has done that, acknowledged that she's had issues, worked past them and gone on, thank God, to have a lovely, hopefully very happy life. Mm-hmm. It really is just... It's a huge feat, really, isn't it? I think it is, you know, inspirational for yeah. for anyone listening. And yeah, God, I don't know what else you really say on it. No, I, I agree with you. I think it's completely inspirational. So as always, the sources that I use for this episode are linked in the description box. Follow us on Instagram at InfractionThePod to see photos each week that relate to the cases that we cover. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you come back and join us next week where we're going to be doing something a little bit different and Sally and I will be doing the story together which will be joyous. So (laughs) we will be looking at a man who is potentially a serial killer but most definitely a horrible depraved lunatic. So if that tickles your pickle, we'll see you next week. Oh, does tickle your pickle mean something rude? Well, I don't know. It definitely sounds a bit weird, but there we go. You've said it now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, see you guys next week for some pickle tickling. Bye. Thanks all. Bye.